my question was, can we stop entropy? No, Zach. Seems like something you'd want to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the penitentially young, contritefully hip, and meatlessly lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by just Zach Davis. Not just Zach. Da- Come on. <laughs> Only Zach Davis. <laughs> uh, that's okay. You're joined by Zach. <laughs> by me. Hello. Uh, yes, we are missing Olga Segura very much this week. Yes, Olga is with our producer Eloise in the Holy Land and a number of uh, America staff members. America's on uh, its annual pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Yeah, so America in addition to making a magazine and podcasts and videos, also leads pilgrimages uh, in the Holy Land, in Spain, and in Rome. I've been on the Spain and Rome. I have not been on our Holy Land trip. So no. I'm very jealous of yeah. Olga right now. It, I mean, and so you can follow their journey at journeys at America, journeys.americamedia.org. Uh, yeah. They're also like uh, Father James Martin's posting some really good Instagram photos and giving us major FOMO. Yeah, it's true. Because they're just like chilling by the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. Wish I was there. We're just chilling by <laughs> the subway rats here in New York. <laughs> Another spiritual experience. Yeah. So what's on tap, Zach? Uh, nothing. <laughs> and who are we talking to this week? This week we're talking with Elizabeth Acevedo, who is a slam poet and author of the upcoming novel, The Poet X, which comes out next Thursday. Uh, March 6th, that's Thursday, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so we actually recorded this interview earlier this month, so you'll hear Olga's voice. Uh, Liz did an event uh, here at the American Media offices in New York where she did a poetry reading, and it was really great. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see videos of that on our website at americamag.org, so definitely check those out. I have just been told that March 6th is a Tuesday, so The Poet <laughs> X, Liz's new novel, comes out Tuesday. Okay. March 6th. I know. Uh, February is a weird month. <laughs> it is. It is. 20 yeah, days. Yeah, I can't believe it's yeah. already about to be March. How's your Lent going, Ashley? It's going well. So uh, listeners will know that the host of Unorthodox gave us our um, Lenten penance, which was not engaging in political fights, which to be honest is not that hard for me. I don't really get into political fights because I hate confrontation. Well, and, and I feel I like am the, a moderate. <laughs> most, I feel like most of the fights you get in, I provoke. I yes. start. And if I'm not allowed to start them. Exactly. So I've kind of given myself other things to, you know, make it a little tougher. So no sweets, which, you know, is standard. Um, and then I've also tried to stop listening to podcasts on the subway. So it's kind of like a mishmash of all these different things. Okay. Um, but yeah. Have you been keeping it up? Have you found it difficult? You're in there. Yeah. No, I found it difficult. Oh, I've also been doing the Jim Martin examine. Have you been doing that? I have. Yes. So that's his new podcast, uh, that you can, you know, find, get wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and it leads you through the examine. It's 18 minutes long and I really like it. What about you? How's your or how I, is your Lent? I'm going? actually finding the political thing very difficult. Yeah, because um, I'm trying to abide by their their rule of any and all kind. Mm-hmm. So I'm not actually even retweeting anything that I agree with politically. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't quite taken stock of the spiritual mm-hmm. lessons that have come out of you know not okay. engaging. So there's no part of you that's like just relieved to be taking a step back. Not really. No. Yeah. Okay. Um. Not yet. We'll see. All right got another another month to go yes and listeners if you're you know struggling through your lenten thing 
keep on keeping on, I guess, because yeah. there's still a long ways to go. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Let us know how it's going. Email us. Tweet us. Um, but now, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Yes. Dozens of Catholics were arrested yesterday uh, as they were protesting in Congress. This was a follow-up to Monday's National Catholic Call Congress Day, which we talked about on last week's Signs of the Times. Tuesday was a National Day of Catholic Action on behalf of Dreamers. And so dozens of Catholics, including men and women religious, were arrested uh, near and in the U.S. Capitol. They were protesting with signs and with banners, and they were singing Hail Marys and chanting. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this. They were chanting... uh, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Oh, wow. Which is scripture, uh, but all referring to Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Yeah. But also Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan, who is Speaker of the House and uh, saying he should be doing more to protect dreamers and not using them as bargaining chips, et cetera, et cetera. Not the um, first time Paul Ryan has been chastised by nuns. <laughs> no, he's got to he's be getting sick of that. Of note, of the 30 or 40 arrests, eight were... Religious sisters, sisters of mercy. So um, as one person on Twitter put it, uh, the sisters were being led away because religious sisters lead the way. Oh, that's great. So So, true. Yep. Uh, What's our next story, Ashley? Uh, Yeah. So in Michigan, inspired by the really horrific case of Larry Nassar, the USA Gymnastics national team doctor who was recently convicted of... Uh, serially abusing children who he was supposed to be taking care of, uh, the Michigan legislature is considering a law that would extend the uh, statute of limitations for people who were abused as children. Um, And the uh, Michigan Catholic Conference has said that this is uh, of concern to them. This is the lobbying arm of the Catholic Church in Michigan. Um, They have not come out against this specific proposal, but in the past, um, they have opposed legislation right, yeah. that would, it, specifically in Michigan, they've opposed legislation that would, um, you know, lengthen the, mea- the amount of time that people who have been abused can still bring a civil or criminal case against their abuser. And right now, the someone who's been abused as a child has until their... 19. 19th birthday. Which to... isn't, that's not a lot of time. No. Uh, and the, the law would move it to 40, 48. Is that right? Oh. Yes. Yeah. For, yes. And w- one of the uh, one of the uh, Larry Nassar's victims uh, test- told members of the state Senate that the median age for women and men to disclose sexual abuse is 41 for men and 38 for women. Yeah, that really jumped out to me, too. Um, so, yeah, the we don't want to, like, pass judgment on the Catholic Church in Michigan yet because they're still considering uh, the facts of this specific bill. But we thought we would talk a little bit about the church's general response to legislation like this. Yeah, it's really frustrating and something that has come up in the office before. There seems to just be this generational gap in like sympathy for the church because mm-hmm. we, I mean, like we weren't around for the first abuse crisis, but but yeah. for us, it's like, why in the world would the church oppose a bill like this? Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I this is not what I, this is the argument I have heard. Um, is that if you basically get rid of the statute of limitations, you are opening the door to people bringing um, cases going back to like the 60s and 70s where um, key witnesses and evidence might not really be still exist. Um, So you have like this limitless potential for litigation that will just bankrupt the church and 
you know, keep the church from having resources to spend on its very important social ministries and helping the needy. Um, so that is that's the argument that often gets made. Um, in California, they um, extended the statute of limitations and the Catholic Church has had to pay out like over a billion dollars in um, settlement fees. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, there's a reason that they have to. It's they're not like a innocent victim here. Right. It, well, in the church in other cases. So there was a case in Chicago uh, just late last year where uh, the court ruled on a a, a false accusation and found the church was innocent and they were they were going to make the uh, accuser like they were considering having them pay court fees at, at a minimum mm -hmm. and in that state instance they said like look this is super rare um, both victim victim advocates and the church um, all around said like this doesn't happen very often um, and even if you had a case where you know bringing back instances from the 60s or 70s and key witnesses are dead and et cetera, et cetera. These are all things you can like sort out in a court of law judged mm -hmm. by a jury of your peers, right? Yeah. Um, so it's frustrating. Yeah, and it's, and it's more than just like bad messaging or bad PR, right? Like right, I think this is... for people our age, like it really is something that like makes it hard for us to you know, respect the authority of the church. Right. And, and people will say like, oh, if you, it, the more money we pay out, the, you know, the argument is like social service centers will be closed and all these different things. But like, that's not anyone's fault, but our own, us being the church community. And like, mm -hmm. we're included in that. Right. Yeah. And so like, we should feel the hurt that we're causing in by blocking legislation like this, it feels like it's getting in the way of reformation of conversion. Um, and so that's what I've been thinking about, especially in this era of Me Too and the spirit of Lenten penance mm -hmm. that we're going in right now. I think that's something the church should be thinking about. Yeah. What's next, Zach? So Catholic bishops in Texas have issued um, a directive that uh, parishes, priests, uh, diocesan groups should cut ties with one of the state's largest pro-life organizations. Uh, the Texas Catholic Conference of Bishops is asking all of its affiliates to stop inviting members of the Texas Right to Life group uh, onto their premises to speak and um, has urged, you know, Catholics to take everything that is, is directed from legislator scorecards uh, to evaluations of legislation with a grain of salt because they haven't been matching up with uh, what the bishops think is, you know, a, f a good pro-life cause. Yeah. And this group has has criticized the Catholic Church, right, for some of the positions it's taken on legislation? Yeah, especially in regards to uh, end-of-life care. Uh, they accu they've accused the church of, you know, just basically allowing death panels, which is not necessarily true because mm. Catholic moral theology on end-of-life issues is quite nuanced and whether, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it, so that's going to be reflected in some of the legislation that gets passed. And it's not at all accurate to say that we're advocating for death panels. Yeah, so the divide here is that the... Catholic bishops recognize that, like, we can work for incremental change, and the Texas Right for Life group does not see that as as acceptable and has a more, like, uh, kind of like a purity litmus test on anything they're willing to support um, in terms of laws. Is that is that right? Yeah, and also, they haven't been necessarily great stewards with uh, some of the money they've been using because they'll push through legislation that may blanket ban abortion in the state that's going to get struck down by a court right away and then the organizations that 
push through that legislation are going to have to pay for the fees of the people that sue to get the legislation struck down. Right. And so there's an issue of being good stewards with your money because mm-hmm. that doesn't help anyone. And it's, if anything, it sets the movement back some. Right. What struck me as interesting is hearing, you know, the Catholic Church in Texas, which I don't think anyone would accuse of being anything but very pro-life, um, you know, making the case for nuance and working for incremental change. Because I think there are some Catholics who feel that they are unfairly tarred when they work with, say, like a pro-choice Democrat on something either, you know, supporting women's health um, or like early childhood initiatives. Um, but and, you know, from their perspective, they're they're supporting mothers in a way that might lead to less abortions, but they still get called out for cooperating with evil for doing that. Yeah, there is this instance uh, in Illinois this this past week, too, because as part of uh, National Day of Action and National Call-In Day on behalf of Dreamers, Cardinal Supich uh, called his senator, who is Dick, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, um, who was recently uh, barred from communion by Bishop Paprocki of Springfield. And so some people on the Twitter sphere or wherever were saying, I can't believe Cardinal Supich, you know, called this senator who has this uh, pro-abortion stance to help dreamers, which I guess the logic is being you should only work with pro-life senators to get protection for dreamers, which yeah, is not a practical solution, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I, I that was disheartening. Uh, so everyone else, keep calling your senators, no matter what, no matter what their position is on uh, a number of issues. Yes, because this is about the dreamers, not about not about the senators. Um, so, okay, now on to something lighter because that was a lot of heavy <laughs> stuff, Zach. <laughs> So this past week, there were some great photo ops that came out of the Vatican <laughs> because uh, Versace and Vogue were there. And by that, I mean uh, Donatello Versace and Vogue's editor, Anna Wintour. They were both at the Vatican to help promote the uh, Catholic Church's role in shaping fashion. Yes. And so they were hosted by Cardinal Ravasi, uh, who is the minister of the Vatican's culture department, um, forgetting the exact phrasing. I felt very uncultured because everyone was posting these photos and I had no idea who any of these people are. Yeah, same. But they, did they like... <laughs> but they are great pictures. Cardinal Ravasi looks very... <laughs> I mean, he's a hip He's a hip guy, yeah. but he does look out of place a little <laughs> next to, you know, the very fact... They've got this, like, very... Both of them have fashionable dresses on and there are these... Uh, displays with like golden papal tiaras and it especially looks jarring in the era of francis when like all of this like elegant dress has been stripped away yeah a little bit and so i mean ravasi looks sharp and his cardinal uh, you know get up the black and the red always in fashion very classic (laughs) very classic uh but it's to promote uh an exhibit in, in new york at the met um, that's called Heavenly Bodies: Fashion in the Catholic Imagination, which opens this spring. Which and that we were all we're all going to try to crash, right? Yes, I can't <laughs> wait for yes. that. Um, we have we're going to have a link to some of these photos in our show notes, so you should definitely check them out. But there, that those weren't the only great photos that came out of Rome this week. That is correct. Um, Rome had its first snow in six years, which was made for some great photos. You know, there was 
and it was it was a lot of snow. It was a it lot was of like snow. Six, six inches or something, um, which they were not prepared for. I read somewhere that they brought in the army to help yeah. <laughs> clear the streets because like they just do not get snow. But everyone was making the most of it. There were priests in the news stories. They say the priests were having a snowball fight, but like these were clearly priests that were not having a, have never had a snowball fight because they were just kind of like tossing the snow <laughs> in the air. <laughs> it wasn't really aimed at anyone. <laughs> but it, it was cool to see them in uh, their black cassocks and yeah. their their the, the various hats, priestly hats that uh, in headgears that <laughs> yeah. uh, Catholic clerics wear, um, all kind of running around in the snow in St. Peter's Square, which you know Rome is not. Uh, you know St. Peter's is normally in in all white, but it's yeah. not like it's, Rome's kind of a dirty city, so yeah. it's not really the blinding white that snow can <laughs> bring. Snow. Yeah, uh, and so that was also just like really fun to see. Yeah, so yes, we will have pictures of that as well in the show notes. Perhaps maybe it was Anna Winter who brought Winter to Rome. (laughs) Oh, Zach. (laughs) So today we're excited to welcome Elizabeth Acevedo. She is a slam poet and author of the upcoming novel, The Poet X. Welcome to Jesuitical, Liz. Hi, how are you all? We're great. Pretty good, pretty yeah, good. Happy. Fantastic, glad to be here. Thank We're you. We're very, very excited. So Liz, you combine all of your many talents in The Poet X. So to give our listeners a sense of your work, could you read a little bit from the novel? Sure. We, we really like the poem Spoken Word. Yeah, so if you could read that one. So to contextualize it a little bit, the main character, Xiomara Batista, is a secret poet. So she hasn't told anyone that she's a poet, but she writes in her journal. And this is the first time that her teacher has invited her to poetry class, to a poetry, uh, excuse me, club, and is now going to show her a little bit of what they do in the club. And, and she calls it spoken word, which Siomara didn't know was a thing. When class starts, Miss Galliano projects a video, a woman on stage, her voice quiet, then louder and faster like an express train picking up speed. The poet talks about being black, about being a woman, about how beauty standards make it seem she isn't pretty. I don't breathe for the entire three minutes while I watch her hands and face, feeling like she's talking directly to me. She's saying the thoughts I didn't know anyone else had. We are different, this poet and I, in looks, in body, in background, but I don't feel so different when I listen to her. I feel heard. When the video finishes, my classmates, who are rarely excited by anything, clap softly. And although the poet isn't in the room, it feels right to acknowledge her this way. Even if it's only polite applause, my own hands move against each other. Miss Galliano asks about the themes and presentation style, but instead of raising my hand, I press it against my heart and will the chills on my arms to smooth out. It was just a poem, Siomara, I think, but it felt more like a gift. Mm. Wow, that was great. Thank you for that. Thanks. So you decided to write this book, or you first decided to write this book when you were a teacher, yes? I was. I was an eighth grade English teacher. Now, were you thinking about your students throughout this writing process? I think the impetus at first was my students. I was teaching in a predominantly Latinx school. I was the only teacher they'd ever had of Latinx descent who wasn't teaching Spanish. Hmm. And so all of a sudden they had this English teacher who who their parents could talk to, who has similar cultural background, who was bringing in literature that felt familiar, like the places they were from. And I had one student who who looked at me one day and said, we read all these stories, but none of them feel like us. None of them feel like 
they're about us. And so I went out and bought all these books by Latinx authors and came back and she zoomed through them. And she wasn't my, my top reader. She wasn't even at grade level at the time. But all of a sudden she found books that interested her. And then two weeks later, she's like, all right, I read all the books. What's next? And I'm like, oh, no, like, I, don't, I don't have anything. But it made me realize we need more stories on the bookshelves that reflect mm. those students. Was that your experience, too, growing up? I would say it was. I mean, I was a voracious reader and I loved Little House on the Prairie. I loved, um, you know, Because of Winn-Dixie. I loved Harry Potter and mm. all these books. But I do think there was a little bit of me that wondered where are my stories? And that's probably why I turned to hip hop and music, because that was where I saw my community. That was where I saw the people I knew and grew up with. That felt like home. I didn't think books were about me. I could read them. They were for me, but I couldn't write them and they weren't going to be about me. Music was about me. Yeah, that's super relatable because I'm 28 years old and I still, most of the literature that I've read my whole life doesn't look like me. Like even the cover of your book, I'm looking at her and I'm just like, her hair looks like mine, her <laughs> hair looks like my sister's, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, I can only imagine what that feels like to be a student and to be able to kind of like look at this and see yourself. It's super profound. I hope so. I was uh, surprised by how Catholic the book was. <laughs> like it... Like I knew I had read the blurb and I knew that she would be dealing with the tension of her mother's religion and like her kind of pulling away from the church. But I was like, wow, this is a really Catholic <laughs> YA novel. Was that something that you intended? Like you brought your own experience with religion into that? You know, I don't know if it's what I intended. I've read a lot of young adult that deals with religion and I can't say it's my favorite genre. Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes it's it can be reductive. Mm -hmm. And how the the topic is approached. It's either you are, or you aren't. You you like are really about you know your faith, or you you are shying away from it, but it's not really explained why. And so with this story, I knew I wanted a parent who has found strength and power through the church, and has mm -hmm. found identity through the church, and can't understand why their child doesn't see that. And I wanted a child who who has a lot of questions and doesn't know how to say, I, I am not ready for this, and I don't know if I ever will be. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the central conflict. Mm -hmm. And so it rippled out throughout the book whether or not that's what I wanted it to do. But I hope that it's um, it feels universal whether someone is Catholic or isn't Catholic. But to speak to your point, you know, I write all these poems mm -hmm. and then like we'll go back and be like, wow, this is really Catholic. <laughs> the iconography, the language. Yeah. I think my first poems were were being in church, was mm -hmm. listening mm -hmm. to prayers. And so I can't help yeah. that that seeps in. Right, right. We just had this um, survey of uh, uh, Catholic women in the United States um, who all self-identify as Catholic, but maybe don't go to church, maybe disagree with a lot of church teachings, but still find some meaning in that identity um is that how would you would you describe yourself as catholic a cultural catholic what would you how do you describe that own that tension in your own life no this is a tough question olga asked me this before and i was like you're gonna put me <laughs> I on did, the spot I did. <laughs> well, gave such a great answer so um, i was like we're bringing it back <laughs> i do feel like catholics are always trying to figure out if you're if you're also catholic yeah. it is like a weird thing we yeah. do i don't know if it's good or bad it's, it's my catholic school guilt. i have to keep asking you this question <laughs> this is this is hard for me i mean it's not really hard for me it's hard for me to say because it feels like i'm admitting something that doesn't feel safe to admit mm -hmm. um particularly because my mother is still very involved in the church and and i recognize what it is for her and i know that for her to hear the answer to this would really hurt her but i i'm not a practicing catholic and i wouldn't consider myself catholic i think 
a lot of I believe in God and a lot of what I am I am trying to consider at, at this point in my life is what were the practices in place in the Dominican Republic and in the people brought to the Dominican Republic before colonizers came. And I'm I'm interested in exploring those faiths and in what that that might hold for someone like me who is really thinking about decolonization. Um, while also recognizing that that's not my mother's answer and what she finds in the church is is so critical and has been so important for her. And so that's what I got. So with that, the the novel's still sort of divided into very biblical uh, mm-hmm. sections, right? So you've got the, in the beginning was the word and mm-hmm. the, then the word was made flesh. Mm-hmm. What were you trying to evoke with that type of frame? I think I've I've always been moved by the idea that you know, two or more people in a space talking about God, that that is church. And I think about... I think that Jesus guy said that. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus guy had a lot of good words, yeah. let me tell you. <laughs> that man was a poet. <laughs> and I love that that poetry is often thinking about universal truths, is thinking about what is the heart of the human experience, and that oftentimes people are talking about God whether they say it or not. And to bring in a space where multiple people can share what's on their heart, that to me feels like incredibly powerful and what what church does for a lot of people. And so those sections were really Siomara thinking about poetry, right? The word becomes flesh was when she finally embodies her poetry. Mm-hmm. In the beginning was the word was like, in the beginning I started writing because it was the only escape I had. And so that it is applicable in every regard um, to her life, right? I hope. That was the, that was yeah. the goal. I don't know if it succeeded. <laughs> That's what I tried. You talking about the way poetry functions, it, it reminds me of like the way I think about prayer mm. also, sort of like directing your thoughts at these things and feeling and um, being in community. Has poetry ever felt like prayer to you? I think there's something really powerful, probably less when I'm performing. Mm-hmm. I think some poets can do it when they're on stage and really feel like they have entered a, a realm that is just beyond the flesh or beyond the moment. There have been times when I have watched someone read a poem that I have felt so moved and so connected um, in a way that feels like almost this bubble in time. And then, you you know, the poem's done and you wake up and you're like, all right, I'm at a bar and like, <laughs> and I shouldn't be crying, right? But <laughs> But that that to me probably feels like that idea of, language elevating us to to a space that feels beyond this reality yeah has your mom read the book you know she flipped through it because (laughs) it's not out yet so she flipped through an an advanced reader copy that Mm -hmm. i had and i think it's hard for her to realize like fiction because my poetry is is tends to be more autobiographical and she's read that this is I think there are moments that I pulled from, but but no, like mm-hmm. I was never made to kneel on rice. My mother was Is that super. A thing? I was made to kneel, but not on rice. My mother was made to kneel on rice, but I was just yeah, made to kneel, made school. to kneel for like an hour and during Thanksgiving and things like that. If I ever yeah. talk back, wow. very, oh, yeah, it's an old school practice. Dominican moms are very <laughs> yeah. fierce. It's a very Caribbean um, practice, the mm-hmm. kneeling on rice. Um, and I think a little old, probably before our generations, although yeah. I've heard stories since reading from this, I'll read and, and people will come up to me and say, I was made to do that. Um, it's, a, it's a punishment. 
Where was I going with this? Your mom. Did Your mom. She yeah. Mom. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, she was, she loves that I was a poet. She was like, oh, yeah. yes, go on stage. She wanted me to be famous, get right. on EBC on. Like, she had all these dreams. So for her, she's like, this is amazing that you can say these words in front of people and we don't know where this came from. Like, you just mm-hmm. had this in you. So she loves that. But I think the character's mother is a little different. And so she gets nervous when she's mm-hmm. like, well, people are going to think this is me. Mm-hmm. Because in my poetry, when I write about my mom, I'm, I'm writing about my actual mom. Yeah. And so she's like, I don't I don't understand what you mean by this is fiction. I'm like, well, you didn't do this, so it's fake. <laughs> That's what I mean. I made it up. I made it up. So I have to keep telling her, remember, I made it up. Like, couldn't you tell when I was lying when I was a kid? <laughs> <laughs> what makes this novel so great for me is that I see my mom and Xiomara's mm-hmm. mom. I see... Um, the ways in which I had to struggle with a lot of mm-hmm. what my mom believes, you know, um, right. and just kind of being like, I can still love her and we can still right. we can still do this even if we completely disagree, you right. know. Um, and I think that's like we've talked about this, but how important is it for you to kind of refute a lot of the stereotypes that are associated with not just Dominicans, but Dominican characters in literature? This is hard because I think when you're talking about refuting, then you have this audience in mind that is present when you're writing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think for me, it's less about I'm going to prove these stereotypes wrong and more about I am writing the experience I know and I am affirming that my people deserve to to be on the page and on the screen and in music and, and we exist. Mm-hmm. We exist and right, we're here. Right. And it's less about like, if you thought that we're just here and we're just baseball players who mm-hmm. like love plantains, like no, I don't I don't care about that mm-hmm. audience member, honestly. Right. I, I care about the folks who are coming to this and want to see themselves. And if other folks come and are like, Oh, this is an interesting story that I didn't expect, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But I'm not here to offer a counter argument or a counter narrative. Mm-hmm. This is the only narrative I know. Right. This right. is a narrative that is true to me and and I just I I don't want that audience in my head or in my ear. Mm-hmm. Um and revision, maybe I'll think about, is this stereotypical? Can I flip this? How do, is this what is expected? But I think when I'm first writing, it's like mm-hmm. I want I want a young person I once taught who is of Latinx descent to look at this and be like, yeah, that's me. Have you uh, sort of engaged the book with any young people yet? Yeah, I've been able to read it at a couple of high schools. I read it at um, a bunch of colleges I've done. So, you know, kind of young adult-ish, depending on what year they are. And I read it. I read a piece of it at the middle school I taught at. So they were the first ones to see the cover when no one else had seen the cover. And mm-hmm. I went back and, and read a section. Completely different students because mine have graduated. But yeah, yeah. it's been so nice to... middle school, is that kind of the age? I've got a lot of middle uh, school teacher friends in my life. So Yeah, I think eighth grade and up. Eighth Anything grade younger up. than okay. that, some of the topics might be a little bit, a little bit what about, older. What about eighth grade Catholic school? <laughs> <laughs> I suggest that <laughs> department heads buy a book and see if it fits. I mean, I think there are there are difficult things that are grappled with. And and I don't know if Siomara ultimately ends up. She doesn't do confirmation. right? She doesn't. And this is one of the big conflicts in the book is she doesn't end up going through with. So I'm not sure what the reception is going to be from from different, yeah. you know, Catholic spaces. If it's good. I don't know what. Folks are going to take this ass. When I was talking to Olga, I was like, by the way, the book is blasphemous and so am I. So I don't know if you want to do this interview. I was like, yes, please continue. <laughs> That's actually why I was even more encouraged to do it. 
Well, Liz, this has been great, but we Yay. got one more question for oh, you. Okay, here um, we go. We ask all of our guests, um, and it tends to stump some people, but I, I'm excited to hear. I've been very excited <laughs> to see how you respond to this. So if you can canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? So like, who am I making my saint? Yeah. Right. It could be anyone. It could be Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole, Ooh, whoever you want. These are good saints. Yeah, I like there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, dogs, it got to be Frida Kahlo. She's mm. just like, like Saint Frida is is a yeah. G, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my, my confirmation is name is Joan. Okay. I was like, when I found out Joan of Arc was like Saint, mm-hmm. I think that's true. At least the research it I did. Yeah. I, yeah. I was yeah, like, this is, my, this is my confirmation <laughs> name. But... If Frida had been a saint, I mm-hmm. think I would have probably gone with Frida. I just think she's so fierce and was um, on the continuous path of figuring out the woman she wanted to be without subscribing to the notions of womanhood at the time. And mm-hmm. I think that is such a powerful message for, like, always searching for yourself, regardless of who's in your ear. So, okay. Although Joan was bad, too. I don't know. <laughs> She's already there. Yeah, she's good. Yeah, I'll keep her as my confirmation. Okay, so Frida would be my saint. Okay, so Saint Frida. Well, Liz, thank you so much for talking to us. And your book, The Poet X, is out next month, correct? March sixth. Okay, so listeners, go out and get it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, before we get into listener feedback, I uh, just wanted to bring up, maybe you started listening to Jesuitical as part of your Lenten penance, <laughs> or maybe it was your Lenten penance last year, and you're looking for another podcast to engage you this I don't Lent. like talking about ourselves as penance. <laughs> but it, it, we have to accept the fact that it's true. <laughs> um, so America Media actually launched a few different podcasts this Lent to help people get engaged in various ways uh, in their spiritual life and with the Psalms. There's The Examine with Father James Martin, which Father Jim leads the listener through The Examine prayer, which is really nice. We, we've both, we've all been doing it as part of the show. So if you've thought about praying The Examine, and if you don't, that's The exam. I should say, yeah. I always speak in Jesuit <laughs> speak, but The Examine is a centuries old prayer practice that helps you notice where God was in the little moments, in the big moments in your day. So if you've thought about doing The Examine before, this is the time to do it. There's also The Word, which is a re- regular column in America, but for Lent, they've put out a daily podcast reflecting on the psalm of the day. So at the daily mass readings, they take the psalm from that, and there's a reflection written by Betsy Cahill, who's a scripture scholar, um, and it's really nice, set to music, and it's really quick. So it's a nice way to check in and out for the day. You can find both of those podcasts in all of America's podcasts, including us at americamagazine.org forward slash podcasts and you can support jesuitical by going to patreon.com we launched this last week we have an account on patreon which is a way that you can support us by you know being a part of our community so you uh commit to giving a certain amount of money each month and that gets you um things like Jesuitical swag or a chance to video chat with us, the host, once a month. Or if you are a VIP, you can come into studio um, for a recording and we'll provide drinks. And <laughs> we are providing full cuts of our interviews. So there's oh, some yeah. good stuff. We that already have make... two of those up, right? Yeah. And there's more coming. And so if you're like, man, wonder what else they talked about. Yeah. Because there's, there's more. We can't fit it all in 
40 minutes. Right. So check it out at patreon.com slash America Media. And we want to give a very big thank you to the people who have already supported us through Patreon. Um, our patrons or Patreons, I'm pa- not really. Patrons. Patrons. Patron, not Patrons. <laughs> not Patrons. <laughs> At least not during Lent. <laughs> um, so we've got super fans, which include Allison Colson, Catherine Addington, Jeff Trussell, Keith Bourgeoin, and Matthew Kyrish. And Nicholas Frega. And our ambassadors include Carlos Mesquita, Claudia Macaluso, and Michael Kelly. And our VIP is Andy Stolk. Thank you so much, Andy, and everyone who have supported us. We love making this podcast, but um, we're going to need some financial support in in addition to all the moral and loving support you give us um, each week in order to keep doing this. We did manage to make it a year before we had to (laughs) (laughs) justify ourselves. Yeah, so that's exciting, but now it's time. (laughs) And another thing we should mention about Patreon is it, it... it has like a messaging board. So it's a really cool way to like interact with our listeners and for you to interact with us. So uh, Nicholas Frega wrote to us um, about how much he appreciates the Signs of the Times segment um, and how he even called his congressperson to support Dreamers after listening to that segment of the show. Um, so we're hoping to use this as a way to like get feedback like you know suggestions about what kind of news stories our listeners want to hear about or maybe guests that they want to hear from or drinks or drinks yes so all (laughs) types of recommendations and things that you want to hear about yeah and now it's time for constellations and desolations the part of our show where we talk about where we found god this week and where where it was (laughs) and where it was harder to find god what do you have zach so this week I've got a consolation. So as we've mentioned before, uh, as part of our Lenten practice, we're doing the Examine podcast with uh, Father James Martin and been in Jesuit education and in Jesuit ministries for a little while now. And the Examine is always a big thing. And I've always shied away from doing it. We talked about this last week with Brother Luigi about, you know, being hesitant to engage in, in prayer a lot of the times. That was definitely the case for me, is especially with this prayer practice, because it, part of it, it is reflecting on where you messed up during the day. <laughs> and I was always afraid to dwell on that for too long, which, you know, says something about me. Mm-hmm. But my first experience with it was overwhelmingly going through my day and noticing that God is present in so many moments throughout my day that I don't even give a second thought to normally. That's the consolation. And I know that sounds a little pious, but it, it is Not what it all, is. Zach. Oh, shut <laughs> No, I, I, and I've had a similar experience. It's just like, uh, I don't know. It, it, especially since we spend so much of our time at work, just like going through the workday and just like interactions with with all of my coworkers, I'm all, I just like feel very grateful for all of those. Are you viewing all the times I interrupt you during the day <laughs> as moments of grace? Or <laughs> yes, they they pull me away from my work <laughs> so I can reflect on God as He is in you. Oh, th- that's thanks, Ashley. Yeah, Ashley, what do you got this week? Um, I also have a consolation. Uh, so one of my uh fears or insecurities um is that you know my closest friends all live in different you know besides you guys my my closest friends uh from previous stages of my life all live in different cities um all my family lives in the dc area and i just like fear that the distance is gonna you know get in the way of those relationships but this past weekend uh my my best friend growing up 
uh, asked me to be her maid of honor for her wedding that's coming up. Uh, and she, she lives in California and we only really see each other one time a year now. Um, but it was just like a very good reminder for me that even though, um, I don't, I don't have to like earn her love by like constantly being in her life or doing things for her or like, you know, just reminding her I exist. Like mm -hmm. she's not going to forget that I exist. Um, she's going to love me because of who I am and give that love freely. Um, just like God does. Uh, so that was just a good reminder that like I'm lovable without having to like remind people that I exist <laughs> by like being right in front of them. So that was good. <laughs> And and if God and if like our other humans do it with us, and yeah. that and like, it's always nice to think that God loves us even in an even more perfect way. Yeah, no. yeah. Thanks, All right. God. Should we <laughs> should we wrap? Yes, Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. This oh, week, though, by this... Eric Sandrup S.J., who also provides Jesuit formation. Our editor is Noah Levinson, Engineering and Design by Angelou Jesus Kanta, and one-third of our adverbs this week, our favorite adverb, Meatlessly, was provided by Patrick O'Neill, who also left us an iTunes review. So thank you, Patrick. You can follow us on Twitter, at Jesuitical Show, and please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For America Media with Zach Davis, I'm Ashley McKinless, missing Olga, and we will see you next week. <laughs>